We continue in our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews, and we come in our study of chapter 7 this morning to verses 20 to 24. So our text is Hebrews 7, verses 20 to 24. Uh, The title of our sermon is Surety of a Better Testament. In this chapter, we've seen a contrast and comparison uh, between Aaron and the Lord Jesus Christ, setting forth uh, the glory and superiority of Christ as the final high priest, who is, unlike Aaron, after the order of Melchizedek. Aaron had glory. Aaron had stupendous glory. Indeed, I think if we, with the Old Testament fathers had gathered on so many of those occasions when Aaron appeared, we would have had our breath taken away at the sight of him uh, to see uh, all that, uh, that he was and to watch the exercise of his responsibilities and duties within his, his office. And this captivated the imagination of the Jews uh, for the course of 1,500 years. They held fast uh, to all that the, the, the significance of all that that high priestly ministry represented for them as a people and as households and as individuals. But now in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the old has been set aside and the new has come. And that new is, is, is a new, a newness that far surpasses uh, what was seen and known of, of, of Aaron. And so here we're directed to the fact that Jesus does not descend in terms of his his priestly office from the order of Aaron, but from another that had been prophesied and promised, namely in Psalm 110, after the order of Melchizedek, which demonstrates yet again and even further that he is to have the supremacy, that Christ is to be supreme over all. Let me give you just a quick kind of overview, because as we're wading through the details, we can sometimes lose track of them. And I think at times stopping to, to feel the weight of the, the compilation of, of points uh, at, at times can uh, have a, a, a deepening influence and impact uh, upon us. In terms of just chapter 7, and in terms of Christ's superiority uh, over Aaron, Notice what's covered uh, throughout this chapter. Aaron is but a man. Christ is the Son of God. This is repeated later. Aaron belonged to the tribe of Levi. Christ, according to the flesh, sprang from the tribe of Judah and is therefore a priest king. Aaron was made after the law of a carnal commandment. Christ, after the power of an endless life. Verse 16. Aaron made nothing perfect. Christ did, verse 19. Aaron was unable to bring the sinner nigh to God, but Christ has been able. Aaron was not uh, inducted into his priestly office by an oath, as we'll see here in verse 21, but Christ was. Aaron had a whole host of successors. Christ had none. Aaron died. Christ ever liveth. Aaron was a sinner, Christ ever liveth. Or he is separate, rather, from from sinners. Aaron was was only uh, the priestly head of an earthly people. Christ is made higher than the heavens. Aaron made sacrifices daily. Christ, verse 27, does so once for all. 
Aaron is characterized by infirmity. Christ is perfected forevermore. So here you have, what, a dozen or so points of contrast showing the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's where we find ourselves here in verses 20 uh, to 24. And in the flow of this whole argument, we're, we're considering or have been considering the relationship of Christ and Melchizedek. This section brings that treatment to a close. So here he wraps up, as it were, uh, the, the treatment of the relationship of Christ and Melchizedek. So we're going to note three things with the Lord's help uh, this morning. First of all, we have a permanent priesthood, verses 20 and 21, a permanent priesthood. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The text says, and in as much, it could be translated moreover, you know, moreover, these things that follow are true. He's introducing, the apostle is introducing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, another truth in order to confirm his point about the relationship of Christ and Melchizedek and the superiority of Christ to Aaron as a consequence. He says, inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. So here, God is demonstrating his jealousy, if you will. In, in Psalm 110, where this is cited, God is demonstrating his jealousy for what? For the glory and preeminence of his Son of his beloved, of the one whom he would raise as, as high priest. And so he demonstrates that with this oath, but he does more than that. So in one sense, he's setting apart and setting up the Lord Jesus Christ, distinguishing him. But he's also at the same time uh, intending to solidify and strengthen the faith of his people. So... By bringing an oath, God gives his word, as we saw earlier, uh, an earlier reference in Hebrews to the oath of God. When God speaks, it's done. It's, it's absolutely firm and fixed. It's secure. It's unalterable, unconquerable. When God speaks, it is absolutely sure. So why is there ever an oath that God enters into? Not for his sake, but ours. He's condescending to us. And he is... He's engaging us in ways that are meaningful to us. A person can say, I'm going to do this, but it's something entirely different and much more for a person to then enter into an oath to swear in a contract that they are going to do something, right? It's super added to one's word. Well, this is the picture that the Lord is using. He's coming and he's saying, you know, I who cannot lie, I who am truth itself, have nevertheless condescended in order to solidify and strengthen the faith of God's people, that they would be absolutely convinced, persuaded, assured, confident that the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed permanent. It's not going anywhere. It's never going to be superseded or replaced or bumped. 
in any way, shape, or form, he's sworn by an oath. And so there's this contrast once again, contrast and comparison. Aaron, his high priestly office, his descendants that followed him, they didn't get, receive an oath, right? Their priesthood was not given with an oath. On the other hand, the Lord Jesus Christ and his priesthood is accompanied by an oath. And so it's, it's showing that Christ's high priestly office and ministry is immutable. It's unchanging. It is unalterable. The Lord is, is as it were, has entered into a resolution to never abolish the priesthood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of this comes from what? All of this comes from very small phrase, a few words drawn from that verse in Psalm 110. The Lord swore that he would be a priest after the order of, of Melchizedek. In other words, this is derived from close analysis of Psalm 110. What happens is the whole, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, who's, of course, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he recognizes a thread of theological weight in those brief words. The Lord swore, and as as he thinks about this, he thinks, well, well, wait, wait a second here. And he, he begins to scour the Old Testament law and scriptures and, and to see what's there. Never is this said of the, the earthly priesthood of Aaron and his, his descendants. And then recognizing that, he begins to draw out the significance of it, right? The, the thread of theological weight begins to, to unravel and it becomes clearer and clearer. You know, there, there's something we can learn here, not just in terms of the truth that is being taught, but also the method that is being exemplified. How does the New Testament use the Old Testament? How do the apostles read and study the Old Testament scriptures? You get insights if you're paying attention and following carefully. Here you see the an indispensable value of meditation of actually slowing down at times in our reading. It's good for us to read vast swaths of Scripture. Let us never dispense with that. But it is also good for us to at times zone in and to zoom in into, into the details of a text, to take what may seem familiar, could just roll off our tongue because of its familiarity, and to pause and begin to think about each word, the weight of each word, the significance, the emphasis, the, 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 the various shades of meaning that are brought out in that. And how often we discover a gold mine is open to us in the process of meditating upon the word of God. That's what's happening here. That's what's being exemplified before you in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 7. And so he says, look, here we see another argument from this text, this prophecy regarding Christ and the fulfillment of the order of Melchizedek. The fact that he swore further elevates the superiority and supremacy of Christ 
over Aaron. Right? He's condescended in this oath. You, you see it elsewhere. And it's almost always in connection with Christ. The Lord came to Abraham and the Lord swore to Abraham that all of the nations would be blessed through his seed. The Lord came in his covenant with David and he swore to David that his seed would forever sit upon his throne. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ would, would come. So it's that same theme that we're seeing here. Who is it, children? That's, who, who are the parties? What's, what's happening here in Psalm 110? It's God the Father speaking to God the Son. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. God the Father is speaking to God the Son. It's the Father who is swearing, who is entering into an oath with his Son that he would make him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's similar to another overtly messianic psalm, Psalm 2, where, where we see the Father promising to the Son to give him the heathen and the nations and the utmost parts of the earth, giving all of that to him as his inheritance, as the king who would sit upon the hill of Zion. So it's similar to that. We're familiar with it. So the question comes, okay, it's the Father who's swearing to the Son. When? When did the Father do this? When did he swear these things to the Son? Well, first clue he obviously did so before he entered his office. So that's, that's easy enough. That, that clears um, one possibility out of, out of the way. When is it that the Lord swore? The answer is in the covenant of redemption. The answer is in that intertrinitarian covenant that was made in the counsel of God himself, in eternity, before time. Uh, the covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, and, and the Spirit. It is there that the Father swore to the Son that he would make him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, long before his, his, his incarnation. And this will become more significant in a moment. And so what's the point? The point is, Aaron, there's no oath with the Lord Jesus Christ, there is oath. There is an oath. The point is this. Aaron's high priestly ministry was intended to be temporary. Right? The same thing that we've seen from various angles in the previous verses. Aaron's high priestly ministry was intended from the beginning. This isn't plan B. This isn't a second thought. This isn't you know, a, a sharp curve in the road. It was intended to be temporary. It was intended to be changeable. And by way of contrast, Christ's high priestly ministry is permanent. And it is unchangeable. Of course, that's the case. The people of God could never have rested. In the end, they could have never finally rested their faith in a mere ministry of the descendants of Aaron. That's impossible. We've seen that previously. That faith can only rest in the object who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It has to be fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Faith in Christ alone. And so this is not peripheral. This isn't, this isn't tedious, detailed argument 
that's, that's somehow extraneous to us. No, the Lord is showing us that he himself is in dead earnest because he swore, because he's entered into uh, an oath. And if the Lord is in dead earnest, then so should we be in dead earnest about these truths, about the fact that there is in Christ a permanent priesthood. You think Christ in his person, Christ in his person as the Son of God, as a divine person, as the one who's taken into union with his person, the human nature and so on. In his person, he is the great God and Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ in his person is the great God and Savior. In this office, he is the great high priest of God. He is greater than Aaron, greater than Melchizedek, because he is the greatest of all. And among the other features of his greatness is permanence. Well, not only do we have confirmed the permanence of this superior priesthood in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the permanence of the whole economy that, it, that introduced it. The permanence of the whole economy that introduced it. In other words, the ceremonial system and all the apparatus and superstructure that goes with it is being laid aside. And in its place, we have a new covenant. And in, in that new covenant, we have a stability and superiority that transcends what preceded it. And so that brings us to our second point, the surety of a better testament. The surety, a surety of a better testament, verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So think of, you know, hold the, the language together in verse 20. And in as much as Christ's priesthood is permanent, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So that's the flow of thought, right? Verse 22 is flowing out of uh, what we saw in verses 20 and 21. And on one side, we have in verses 20 and 21, a permanent priesthood. In the verses that follow 23 and 24, as we'll see, we have a perpetual priesthood. And then we have this gold gem in the middle, this gold gem in verse 22, setting, as it were, in bold relief, Christ as the surety of a better testament. Now, you think of a surety of a better testament, two things are happening, both of which are true, right? The superiority of Christ's priesthood proves that it's a better testament, but also the fact that it is a better testament proves the superiority of his priesthood. So it goes, it actually goes both directions, it mutually re reinforce one another. And so now we have old and new testaments or covenants that are being contrasted and compared. And this actually becomes the theme then of chapter 8. In chapter 8, it is the Old Testament, New Testament that are then taken up, brought to the fore, and held up by way of contrast and comparison. So that's coming. What we see here in verse 22 
Clearly, the Old Testament was good because the New Testament is better. So the Old Testament was good. It was appointed by God. It was gracious. It set forth the glory of Jesus Christ and its symbols and types and so on. But the point is that the New Testament is not only even better, but we would say far better. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So here, children, we need to define some terms. We're, we're bumping up a term, perhaps, that you don't recall. Jesus made a surety. So what is a surety? What is that? What does that, what does that mean? And this is part of the reason this is important is because this is the only place in the entire New Testament where this word is used. In fact, it's not even used in this form in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's not a common word, even in the Greek. But it is a common concept in both the Old and New Testament. And you should know what it means, children, because we use it frequently in describing Jesus and in thinking theologically about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So we need to define what it means. So take, for example, another word that you know. So you know the word mediator. And when you hear the word mediator, you think God-man. Jesus is the God-man. He is the one who stands in the middle between God and men. There's only one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who mediates between God and man. He himself alone can serve in that capacity because he himself alone is the God-man. And so as Christ, the anointed, the prophet, priest, and king, he is the mediator of God's people. So you know that word, and we've come across that word uh, already in, in the book of, of Hebrews the word surety is different than the word mediator. So I mentioned mediator so that you can kind of uh, set it next to it to be able to see some of the, the differences. A surety is a bondsman, one who is bound to pay the debts of another person. A surety is the person who is bound to pay the debts or to fulfill the obligations or engagements of, of another person. So the surety comes and he pledges his name and usually pledges his property and says, I will take responsibility to ensure and see that the terms of a contract, for example, are fulfilled. You know, uh, this person is agreeing to fulfill all of these terms of a contract. Maybe it is to pay back money or do other things. The surety comes along beside him and says, I'm going to take responsibility to make sure this happens. And I'll put my name and property on the line to ensure that, that it happens. So he was responsible to see the terms fulfilled. Now, well, this, you notice, this implies, this implies immediately defect on the part of one on, on the part of of the original party right you wouldn't need a surety unless there was some defect or inadequacy that that called for one and so the surety comes and serves as a sponsor 
right? He's standing in the place. He's pledging to fulfill the engagements or to discharge the debt. So uh, children, you won't be familiar with this. Your moms and dads will. But a close example of this in our own modern practice would be a cosigner, right? Someone who cosigns for a loan. So you have a young person, they have no credit history, they want to buy a house or something, and the bank is saying, look, we, we feel like it's too risky to loan you this money. We don't know if you're going to fulfill it or not. And so somebody's rich uncle comes and they say, I'll co-sign for the loan. And they're, they're basically coming alongside and saying, I'll take responsibility to ensure that this loan will be repaid. And that if he fails to do it, the nephew, then I will pledge my name and property to, to fulfill uh, the terms of the loan, right? The idea of a co-signer. So that's, that's getting you close to this whole idea of what a surety is. It's in, you're in the neighborhood now of what a, a, what a surety is. We have, we have pictures of it in the Bible, mind you. So you can go to Genesis 43, and there you have Jacob, and you have his sons, and they're being sent off to Egypt to get bread and so on. And there's all this interaction with Joseph. And Joseph wants Benjamin to be brought back. And what happens? You'll remember the sons are with, Joseph, with Jacob. And, and Jacob is saying, it's way too risky. There's no way I'm sending Benjamin. I've already lost Joseph. I'm not putting him on the line. You know, something terrible happened. And Judah steps forward. And he says, in essence, I'll be surety. Dad, let me take full responsibility. I will put everything I am and everything I own on the line to ensure that Benjamin comes back. They get to Joseph and Joseph said in the golden cup, the, the cup is found in, 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 um, in Joseph in Benjamin's sack. And what does Joseph say? I'm keeping Benjamin. And Judah comes and falls down for Joseph and says, please, 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 I beg you. I am, and it's not the word, but it's in essence, I am the surety. I have pledged myself to stand in the place of him. Take me, take everything, keep me, please let Benjamin go back, right? So you can see the idea of surety that's there. In the New Testament, an example would be uh, Philemon, where the Apostle Paul is writing to Philemon, and he tells Philemon, you know, your slave Onesimus, he's run away, and he, you know, his, he owes you stuff uh, that he hasn't fulfilled, and so on. And Paul says, look, Philemon, you know, put it to my account. Whatever, whatever Onesimus, your, your slave owes, owes you, just put it to my account. I will repay it. I'll take responsibility for it. So, you know, it's the same sort of picture there. I'm giving you illustrations from Scripture itself. So what's happened here is Jesus is being described as the surety. He is the surety. And now we come back once again to the covenant of redemption. This is a covenant of suretyship, if you will. It's a covenant of, 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 of suretyship because here what's happening is on Christ's side, the father is pledging something. He's saying, I'm, I swear I'll make you a priest after the order of Melchizedek and so on. The Lord Jesus Christ steps forward, standing in the place of the elect. He's coming on behalf of the elect in the covenant of redemption. And he's saying to the father, charge to my account everything that the elect owe. I will discharge all of their debts. Right? Jesus is the surety. He's representing 
his people. And so think the Bible itself describes sin as debt, right? Sin is a spiritual debt. Our sins make us indebted to the law, the broken law, punishment and penalty to God and so on and so forth. There's an indebtedness in our sin. And Jesus is saying, take all of that and charge it to my account and I will fulfill all that they, they owe. Now we're, now we're at the nub, aren't we? Now we're at the nub. Jesus is pledging to do this in the Council of Eternity. And he's coming then in his incarnation and in the outworking of the covenant of, ra- of grace between the triune God and, and his people. He is effecting this. He's bringing this to pass. And so with the point here in Hebrews in verse 22 is that Christ's suretyship, right? His being a surety gives stability to this better covenant. It's infinitely better because of his suretyship. It's what imparts permanence and stability and, and so on to, to the covenant. And so what's, what's happening? The Lord Jesus Christ comes as our surety, We're thinking in a specific bucket, children. We got a certain category in front of us. Surety. Jesus is coming to discharge our debts, to have all of those things credited to his account and so on. And this is exactly what happens. All of the debts are paid by Jesus Christ alone. All of the sins that that the elect have committed are punished in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Justice, which is demanded, is satisfied perfectly. It's upheld, it's kept, it's, it's, it's preserved. Justice is satisfied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The law, with all of its demands, is vindicated, and all of its far-reaching um, demands is vindicated in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, as our surety. Right? Christ did all of this. He did all of it. And then what's more is he obeyed all of the demands of the law, right? Not only in terms of the demands for the broken law, the curse that he was made for his people, but also the demands of obedience and perfect conformity to its de- The Lord Jesus Christ fulfills all of that as well, standing in the place of his, his people. And so here we have a surety, and it's the surety of a better testament. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now, interesting, this word testament appears for the first time right here in the book of Hebrews. We haven't seen this word until chapter 7. And I say it's interesting because we're going to see this word a lot after this point, right? It's, It's used several times after this, but it appears for the first time here. It's actually used 33 times in the New Testament scriptures. In our translation, 12 of those times, it's translated testament, and the remainder, the balance, it's translated covenant. So it can be translated either testament or covenant. There are times, like in Hebrews 9, when it must be translated testament instead of covenant. However, 
on this occasion, in this text, and in many others, it could be translated either equally. So this could be translated testament or covenant, um, rightly, in this, in, this particular, in this particular passage. But speaking of a better testament, which is the new testament, the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the new covenant in his blood, right? The blood of the surety. So here we have accentuated the fact that the permanence of his priesthood is, uh, correlates with his serving as a surety and which introduces the permanence, if you will, stability, superiority, the betterness of the testament that replaces the old testament economy with its ceremonial system and so on. And so here we have the surety, a surety of a better covenant. What do we do with this? Well, you can listen to all of this and think about it theoretically and think, okay, we, we understand the word surety easy enough for us to understand the concept. We understand the theological significance of it and so on. But that's not at all what's intended in this passage or any other ever in the Bible is to merely check your theological check, bo- you know, check boxes. And to be able to say, okay, I know mediator, I know the definition of justification, I know what I know what surety means, I know what atonement means, and so on and so forth. The point is that what's being opened up to us is the glory of Jesus Christ. If we miss that, friends, we have missed everything. Because this whole book, not just this whole chapter, is about setting forth, as you well know, his superiority and supremacy. And so if we miss catching a sight of that and a scent of that and a taste of that and a touch of that, then you've missed everything. What's so desperately needed for us here is to actually soak in what this means. For us to have been born into and introduced into the administration of a better testament, to have set before us the glory of Christ as the only surety of his people. To take one piece at a time and to think, what does it mean for Jesus Christ to have paid the debts of my sin? What did those debts entail? They entailed a chain that had been wrapped around my neck and locked, sealed tight, welded shut, and then tied to a million pound anchor and chucked into an infinite abyss in hell. That's the debt of my sin. I can't number them. I don't even know them all. I can't even comprehend the number of sins, any single one of which warrants his eternal damnation. What is the debt, incalculable debt for my sin? And here is the one who comes as a surety to say, I'll stand in his place. I... Take the whole lot of it and attribute it to me. Grant that it is all. Put it to my account. I will repay it. What does it mean for him to be punished in the place, for sin to be punished in him as he stands in the place of his people? What is unimaginable for us to think of hell, right? That infinite, unending torment of the body physically and the soul spiritually together, being tormented with no relief, indeed with 
escalating degrees of anguish. Hope, mercy, all of these things shut out for eternity. All warranted, all equitable, all just. Oh, what's that like? That's the punishment of my, what my sins would require. What is it for Jesus Christ then to stand in the place as a surety and say, I will be damned, I will, I will be punished on their behalf? You know, what is it to think of the Lord Jesus Christ suffering? What is it to think of the Lord Jesus Christ dying, of the atoning, of, 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 of his uh, atoning love on behalf of his people? And stuff? These are not things to be treated casually. These are not things to be treated merely intellectually. These are not things that would be touched and, and passed off as, as incidental to us. These are truths that are to be brought home with power into our souls. We're to taste them. We're to smell them. We're to feel the power of them in our souls. For those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ to have that pressed, the absolute indispensable need that you have right this moment for a surety who would stand up as it were in the presence of God and say, write it to my account. Recognizing that you have no help, no hope in this world or the next, time or eternity, without him. And to see something of the glory, the love that must be behind that, the infinite, incalculable love of the Redeemer, of the eternal Son of God, and of the Father, and of the Spirit, all of the depths of grace, and, and all of the beauty that this opens up and discloses to us, how that should draw your heart to flee and run and close by faith with the Savior in the gospel, and for the Lord's people. We can't remain untouched by these things. Rather, what it is, is it's the engine. It's the engine of the Christian life. The love of Jesus Christ, which is beyond knowledge and beyond comprehension and beyond calculation. That love is what compels and constrains the Christian life. It's seeing more of it and different hues of it and greater depths of it that fires the soul of the Christian and that sets the Christian to say, I want to do everything. I want to live for him. I want to die for him. I want to withhold nothing from him. I want to burn out for him. I want to do everything to exalt him. I want to worship him and love him and serve him. It's the sight of his love. It's the sight of him as a surety. It's the sight of all these things. It's the engine of our devotion, of our submission to him. <clears throat> our obedience to him, the increase of our faith in him, our desire to please him. Here's the surety, a surety of a better covenant. But then thirdly, we have a perpetual priesthood. Thirdly, we have a perpetual priesthood, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. This is the last argument. The last argument drawn from Psalm 110 regarding Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest in his own class. He had no predecessors, no successors. Jesus Christ is a priest in his own class. No predecessors, no successors. He's a prophet, priest, and king. He's one from the tribe of Judah. He's far above Aaron, so on and so forth. Here we have this, this not only the oath, but this this 
language of him continuing that is now used as an argument. It's perpetual. It's unchangeable priesthood. The Levites' priesthood, one by one, were ter- terminated. They died. The reign of death is terrible, but it's inescapable for mortal men. The reign of death is terrible. And what we see is, you know, here is Aaron and, and then his sons, Eliezer, and, you know, right down through Phineas and so on and so forth, right down through the ages, one after another, after another, after another, they die. They serve, sometimes valiantly, sometimes usefully and beautifully. They hit 50, retire, and eventually die. They die. And so when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, what about him? You know, we're hearing that he's glorious, that he's better, that he's superior, that he's the, and so on and so forth. What advantage would it be for you to have, my friend, such a glorious high priest with all of his intercessions and all that he's done in terms of offering the sacrifice of himself, to have such a glorious high priest for only a season? Jesus is the best. He's the highest. He's the most glorious. He's incomparable. But he's only your priest for a season. And then he's taken away by the expiration of his office. What advantage would that be? Very little for you and me. And so you come in verse 23 and he says, look, these Levitical priests... Mortality stamped over them. Generations of death. All of it shows imperfection. The Jews tell us that there were 83 high priests, 83 of them, stretching from Aaron, the first one, to the last one at the destruction of the second temple. That whole period included 83 high priests. Why? Why were they multiplied? Because they died. It's verse 23. Because they died. All of the solemnity and glory at their installation. I mean, here they are, Aaron, or you know, later, the ceremony, all that comes there. You know, they're set in these beautiful robes that have been prepared and you know, there's the anointing oil and the fragrance that fills the atmosphere of the, the whole area. And you have all of the different pieces of their, the paraphernalia of their apparel and the rites and, and uh, responsibilities that are given to them. The sprinkling and all that takes place, right? It's, it's enough to, to leave people staggered watching it. But the fact is that every one of them ends up being derobed. Every one of them. All of their responsibilities are taken away. All of the glory is taken away. It's interesting. It's, it's, I find this, at least for me, in, in Numbers 20. The end of Numbers 20, that scene. Aaron, the first high priest, the great high priest, comes to the end. It's actually quite moving. You know, in verse 25, take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments. 
Cut them on Eliezer's son. Aaron shall be gathered unto his people and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up into the Mount Kor in the sight of all the congregation. People are watching. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments, put them upon Eliezer's son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mount. Right, what a solemn scene. What an indelible impression this would have undoubtedly made and should have made upon, upon the people. But this is what this passage in Hebrews 7 is making. Right, Death disrobes. It disrobes every judge in this world. It disrobes every priest. It disrobes. It takes the crown off of the head of every king. Death results in that for everyone. Everyone's responsibilities are stripped, however high and glorious or however low and, and insignificant a person may be. Death takes all of that away. And it took this Levitical office away. By contrast, Jesus is unchanging. You say, well, wait a second, Pastor, not so fast. Jesus died too. Jesus died too. What about that? What about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died? The death of the Lord Jesus Christ was an indispensable, central, chief part of his priestly work. He was actually exercising. He was in the full exercise of his office as priest when he died. He who was the priest was offering up the sacrifice for a sin when he offered up himself. He's in the full exercise of his office. He died as a priest without interruption, offering the sacrifice for sin and abode active in that office without a break. The passage says, continueth ever. He continued in that office, active in that office without a break. His human nature, of course, subsisting in his in the person of the Son of, of, of God. And of course, death, unlike with Aaron and his descendants, had no power of him. It couldn't hold him. He was raised. He, he was raised from the dead and continues to live and to make intercession for his people. Far from being an objection, it actually reinforces the glory of the perpetuity of Christ's priestly office. The point is there's no alteration happening. Right? The point is, a person could say to themselves, well, 1,500 years, there was Aaron's office. I mean, the, the high priestly office that came from Aaron. And the Lord changed it. Now we have a superior priesthood in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know for sure that won't change? How do I know for sure that won't change? And here in chapter 7, the Lord is reinforcing it's permanent and it's perpetual forever. There's no alteration. It can't pass away by definition. It is absolutely impossible. No one is ever able to succeed the Lord Jesus Christ. Perish the thought. His priesthood could never be transferred to any other person. Perish the thought. There's only one that can occupy this great office, this office of great high priest. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who liveth forevermore, who continueth in this capacity forevermore. Is it any wonder to us if the local underlings in Rome 
take this title to themselves as priests. Is it any wonder that their devilish head, the Pope, would take the title of vicar of Christ to himself? The vicar of Christ on earth? Sheer blasphemy. Reprehensible blasphemy. We have a million reasons for why we engage in sinful, or for many, many examples of engaging in sinful anger. But there is a righteous anger. And it should provoke the righteous indignation and ire of God's people that this blasphemy allows to be, is allowed to remain in this world. That mere men would have the audacity of laying claim to a title that only belongs to the exalted Jesus Christ. Any who would touch, defile, diminish, impede whatever else the superiority and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ deserve to be damned to hell. And it will be. These doctrines of Rome are heinous to us and they should provoke our ire. No, there is one who is altogether glorious. There is one head and king of his church. There is one surety. There is one great high priest. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God made flesh. He is altogether beautiful. He is the chief among 10,000. He is fairer than all the sons of men. He is the one that is the darling of the Father, the beloved of his people. He is the one who captivates the imagination and thralls the hearts, who stokes the affections and love of God's people. There is no other and can never be any other. However useful even godly men, earnest men, may be in this world. Aaron was a godly man and a useful man and a faithful man and an earnest man. And so it's been throughout the ages, even since the post-apostolic era. However useful and earnest godly men, women may be, every last one of them dies. Every last one of them is dispensable. They are all dispensable. Never the Lord Jesus Christ. Never the Lord Jesus Christ. Our security, our security personally as individuals, our security as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ hangs on Jesus Christ being a perpetual high priest. It is all built upon the perpetuity of Christ's priesthood. And this is where this text is going, wherefore he is able to save, right? That's where verse 25 and following is going. All this doctrine is being laid down in order that it might crescendo in showing the indispensability of these truths for us. You have troubles. You have great troubles. You have temptations, overwhelming temptations. You have trials that vex you, that disturb you, that shake and rattle you to the core. You have burdens that are being borne beyond what you feel able to shoulder and so on. You see the devil and he appears to rage as an enemy against you. The world with all of its increased hostility to choke and stamp 
out the, the people and church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see all these things. No doubt you see them in your own life, the troubles and temptations and trials and so on. So it has been for the Lord's people all through the ages. So it has been from generation to generation throughout history. And it has been because Christ's permanent, powerful, priestly ministry sustains his people. That we, the heirs of all them, gather together to worship at his footstool this morning. Christ's priestly ministry is permanent, it's perpetual, and it is overwhelmingly powerful to preserve God's people, to advance his own cause, to save us to the uttermost, and to gather glory, honor, and praise to his own great name. What a God, what a Savior. What a high priest we have in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together for prayer. O oh Lord our God in heaven, we come in the name of this surety, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O oh God, look upon him. Turn thine eye to thine own right hand, to the one who has been exalted above, above all and set on the right hand of the majesty on high. Look, O oh Lord, this day upon him and grant that we would be found acceptable in him alone, the one who stood in the place of his people. Make this, O Lord, our hope, our confidence, increase our faith, deepen the sweetness of the sight of these truths that would inflame our love. Grant, Lord, that we would be drawn to him and that we would hang all upon him. For we ask even these things in his name. Amen.